get there today. So Revelation 13 should be on page 956. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Amen. Love the sound of babies in the church, for babies are the sound of life. Revelation 13 and verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded. And his fatal wound had been healed or was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? A mouth was given to him. Speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. And to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe and people, language and nation. All who live on the earth worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, the book of life of the Lamb, who has been slaughtered. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Title of the message this morning is Beware. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We come today and we bow before you and we are in awe of your greatness and your goodness. We are in awe of your love for us and what you have done in sending Jesus, your son, to die an awful death in our place. We rejoice today in the freeness of the salvation we have received. We rejoice today in the freedom from condemnation we we live in at this moment. We rejoice in the freedom from the power of sin that, that we don't have to be enslaved by our base and sinful natures any longer. We rejoice in the hope of glory we have that Christ is in us. God, today, as we look at this passage, we try to understand it in light of not just the end, but now. What's going on in our world now? Let your spirit come and, and open our minds and give us ears to hear what you have for us. Let your spirit be to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you today. So we would know the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of your power toward us as disciples of Jesus. Father, let us leave here today knowing you have spoken into our hearts. Let your word penetrate deep, bring forth fruit, and help us to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. We ask in his name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. As I have said before, and will probably say again in this series, Revelation is not necessarily laid out in chronological order. What we see in Revelation 13, particularly verses 1 through 10, and really all of it, but particularly 1 through 10, is a more complete picture of what we saw in Revelation 6, 1 and 2, when the first seal was broken and the Antichrist was revealed. He just comes upon the scene in Revelation 6, and, and Revelation 13 kind of lays out more about him coming upon the scene. Now, while Revelation 13 is a more complete picture of Revelation 6, 1 and 2, it is also a bit of a continuation from Revelation 12. Right? Revelation 12 ends, The dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the command of God, the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And enraged Satan sets, to make out, sets out to make war with the people of God, to who, those who keep the commandments of God and, and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. How does he do that? How does an enraged Satan make war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ? He does this by raising up a figurehead 
a leader for his kingdom. The person he raises up will be the head of his kingdom and will become the center of the one world religion, which we'll actually look at next week. Now, while the Antichrist of Revelation 13 does refer to a specific and a legitimate person who rises up during the end times, there is also an element of, and I guess you'd say symbolism here, representing opposition to Jesus and his church throughout history. Right? For Satan does not wait to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus Christ until the end times. He has been making war and he will continue to make war until the end comes. And he still does it through his Antichrist. For John, 1 John 4.13 tells us the spirit of Antichrist has been at work in the world always and is at work in our world now. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work today in the world around us. Opposing Jesus, opposing the gospel, opposing the work of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, understanding the, the spirit of Antichrist is at work today is an important aspect to understand what we're looking at in Revelation 13. Because while we do want to understand about the, the Antichrist who will come, we do not want to be fooled into thinking there is not an element and a spirit of Antichrist at work in our world today. Yes, an Antichrist rises up. He deceives the whole world. He leads them astray and he makes war against the saints. But... The spirit who empowers him then is at work in our world today doing exactly the same thing. Therefore, we must beware. Beware. The spirit of Antichrist who leads people astray then is at work in the world now. Three aspects of life to beware. Beware the lust for political power. Now, the way the beast is described in verses 1 and 2 is meant to be a dramatic scene. We're meant to, to imagine him coming up slowly out of the sea with us only seeing the parts of him described as they slowly emerge from the water. Right. So the, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. So there's Satan, the dragon waiting. And as he waits, a beast comes up out of the sea. We don't see him first. We see first ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns are ten crowns. And as he continues to come, we see on his heads are blasphemous names. And we begin to see his beastly body, which is like a leopard, like a bear, and like a lion. And he walks up out of the water and he comes to the shore to the dragon. And in a, a scene like a king knighting someone, the dragon gives him power and a throne and great authority. This is the scene rising up before us. And everything we're told about him here has symbolic prophetic meaning. He comes up out of the sea first. Isaiah 57.20 tells us, compares the lost humanity, the masses of lost humanity to a, a raging or a tossing sea where there is no peace, just constant unrest. The raging, tossing sea stirs up mud and, and refuse so there is no purity. The tossing sea cannot stop raging, it cannot stop moving, it cannot bring peace. This is a great description of the world we live in. Then from out of this tossing sea, this restless humanity, the Antichrist rises. Now, this is really what it means. We know that's what it means when we look at Revelation 17. We know the sea means he comes up out of the people. Right? Verse, Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. And I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. So there we have again the image of the waters. And then if you look down at verse 15, we see what the waters are. 
And then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and languages and nations. The harlot, it seems, it's a picture of all of the world taking part of her sin. For the beast, for the Antichrist, it is a picture of him rising up from among the people. Rising up from among the multitudes and from the nations. Now, there are, I believe, two implications of this for us. One, he's human. Now, that seems pretty basic, but it's important. All throughout history, Satan has tried to imitate Yahweh. One of the ways he does this in the end is through his Antichrist. We'll see Satan will give tremendous supernatural power to his Antichrist. But the Antichrist himself is not truly supernatural. He's just a man who has been supernaturally empowered by Satan. He is a, a forgery of Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. But the Antichrist is just the man-man, empowered by Satan. Second, I believe it pictures his rise to power being dramatic. So we've talked about what the end will be like and how it, it kind of all goes about. Imagine if when all of this begins to happen and the end comes... There's a guy already on the scene who is an international leader. He's a president, prime minister, a king, general secretary of the United Nations, something like that. He has all the answers people need and he just answers them and merely becomes more powerful, more influential. That would make sense. That's kind of what we might expect, but it really wouldn't be dramatic. But imagine for a second that when all of these things start to happen, there's just this this regular guy. Maybe he's a college professor. Maybe he leads a humanitarian, international humanitarian organization or or just some other random, normal guy. Few people have ever heard of. And he comes from humble beginnings. And yet in this moment of distress for the world, he rises up with all of the answers people need. That would be dramatic. That would be amazing. People would be much more apt to follow that person. Right? Because we don't trust politicians, do we? We don't trust the General Secretary of the United Nations. But a random guy who has all of the answers, he's not like one of them. He really cares about us and humanity and wants what's best. Well, that's kind of, I think, what we're going to see. Now, the Antichrist has seven heads Ten crowns, seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. The explanation of that is also found in Revelation 17. So look at verse 9, Revelation 17. Here's the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads or the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now the, the seven heads represent seven mountains, which seems to be an allusion to Rome, which was built upon seven mountains. Many, if not most commentators, take this to To mean the empire of the Antichrist, right? Because this guy is a political leader and he's going to build an empire. His empire will be a sort of revived Roman empire. Now, it is unlikely it will call itself the revived Roman empire, but it will mirror the Roman empire in its power, in its influence, in its cruelty, in its size. Revelation 17, 12 and 13 tell us the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Who have not yet received a kingdom. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So they 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 are nobodies now. And then on a certain day they they rise up and they become world leaders equal to the beast. But then look at verse 13. These have one purpose. And they give their power and their authority to the beast. So they, they rise up to be his equals, and then at one time together they give all of their authority, they abdicate their thrones, their leadership, their authority to the beast, to the Antichrist, and they make him their king. Again, all of this is showing the Antichrist is coming to build a, a political kingdom, right? Politics play an enormous part in what he does in his rise to power and how he rules. 
Now, you look at verse 2 of Revelation 13. Go back, turn back to 13. I think we're through at 17 for now. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were those of a bear, and his mouth was like that of a lion. These animal characteristics have a twofold purpose. First, is to connect him to what has come before. Revelation, in so many ways, doesn't reveal new information as it does elaborate on stuff that's already been told to us. So, for instance, in the book of Daniel, and I don't know if you can read that, that's a lot, but it all had to be put up there. Daniel chapter 3, or 7, verse 3, says there were four beasts Daniel saw, and they came up from the sea. Now, they were different from one another. The first beast was like a lion. We had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until his wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and set on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking. Behold, another one like a leopard. which had on its back four wings of a bird and the beast had four heads. Dominion was given to it. And after this, I, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast. Dreadful, terrible, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So notice the the description of what we see. First, these four beasts all come up from out of the sea, which looks very familiar. Then the first three beasts that came up, are described one as a lion, one resembles a bear, the third a leopard. Again, very familiar to what we're seeing here. And these beasts we know represent different and successive kingdoms or empires that would rise and fall from the time of Daniel to the time of the Antichrist. But there's a fourth beast. And he would be different than all of the others. But he also would rise up from out of the sea, different from the rest, and he had ten horns. Also pretty familiar, right? So what John is trying to tell us here seems to be the Antichrist is that fourth beast. He's saying this is it. This is the last one that was coming. Now, The Antichrist is given these animal characteristics. All predators. Leopard, bear, and a lion. My belief, and and different people can disagree. uh, My belief is the individual predators are not significant on their own. I think rather the emphasis is to describe what the animals are together. Imagine a beast it's like a leopard, with feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion. Very different than all the rest. It would devour and crush. It would be able to trample. I think the picture we're being told here is the Antichrist is the epitome, the fullness All of the evil empires of history wrapped up into one man. And he will build one political kingdom more evil than all of the evil empires before. And to ensure this comes to pass, the dragon, who is Satan, gives him his power and his throne And his great authority. Power. To perform miracles. Which is what will lead the religious astray. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He will do great wonders. Great signs. Great powerful things. All because Satan has given him this power. He has a throne. The ability to rule over the worldwide empire. His empire will span the whole world. Every Tribe and people and language and nation. The ten kings will give their authority to the Antichrist because 
Satan has empowered him for this purpose. And he has great authority. Authority to rule and authority to execute plans. The beast will have authority to rule and execute plans because Satan has given this to him. And the point of all we're seeing with this, what Revelation is trying to show us, what John is trying to tell us, is the Antichrist is the embodiment of satanic evil who draws his power, all of his power, from Satan himself. But the point of Satan giving him this power and making him this embodiment of evil is so he can build a one world government. The Antichrist is not going to be just a guy out there somewhere doing things. He is the political head of Satan's government that he will build in the end times. But God's word tells us this isn't just for the end times. God's word often reveals satanic connections to evil governments and evil government leaders. If we were to take the time to look at Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19 or Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15, we would see God address the kings of nations. And as God addresses them and as God speaks to them and describes their actions, their descriptions are beyond anything a human could be. Their actions are beyond anything a mere human could accomplish. Why? Because what we see in those two passages, the truth found in Ephesians 6.12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Who is behind all of the evil in the world? Satan. But let's be more specific. Who's behind the evil rulers of the world? Who's behind a Hitler? Who's behind a Taliban? Who's behind these evil, crushing empires? Satan is. In the passages I referenced, God is not merely addressing the human king Satan uses to accomplish his will. But he is addressing the ultimate force behind those kings, which is Satan himself. Verse 8. All who live on the earth will worship him. Verse 7. He has authority for every tribe, every people, every language, and every nation. In the end, all the kingdoms of the earth will serve the dragon. In the end, all political parties will serve the dragon. In the end, all people will serve the dragon. All nations, all political parties will serve the dragon for the sake of pleasure and peace and prosperity. So in the end, Russia will serve the dragon. In the end, England will serve the dragon. In the end, Israel will serve the dragon. In the end, Pakistan will serve the dragon. In the end, Afghanistan will serve the dragon. In the end, Canada will serve the dragon. In the end, China will serve the dragon. And in the end, America will serve the dragon. But it's not just the nations. It's the political parties within the nations. The Communist Party will serve the dragon. The Socialist Party will serve the dragon. The Labor Party will serve the dragon. The Democrat Party will serve the dragon. The Libertarian Party will serve the dragon. The Whig Party will serve the dragon. The Green Party will serve the dragon. The Republican Party will serve the dragon. All political entities will serve the dragon. And not only will these nations and parties serve the dragon then. They each and every one, to one extent or another, serve the dragon now. There is no neutrality between Jesus and Satan. God's word is clear. The kingdoms of this world are not the kingdoms of our God. 
The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19 says. Satan is the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience, leading them along his predetermined path. Second, or Ephesians 2.2 tells us. Satan is the God of this world, blinding the minds of all who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.4 tells us. Every world power, whether it be a nation or a religion or a political party, that is opposed to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, receives its power and its authority from Satan, who Jesus says comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And no political party, no nation, no political entity will be as bad as they could be. But to the degree they reject God's word as the authority, to the degree they resist and reject the, the lordship of Jesus Christ over them, to the degree they do those things, they are against Jesus and led by the spirit of of Antichrist. The Antichrist of Revelation 13 is the fullness of every wicked empire in history. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work in every political entity on the earth today. Beware the lust for political power because it leads to serving the dragon and his Antichrist. No political entity, whether it be a nation or a party, is going to usher in the kingdom of God. Only Jesus does this, and until He does, we must beware and reject being taken in by cheap imitations. Beware the lust for political power. Beware blasphemies. We're told the Antichrist is blasphemous. Verse 1, on his head are blasphemous names. Verse 5, he speaks blasphemous words. As the idea, as disciples of Jesus, the idea of him being Speaking blasphemies or being blasphemous doesn't sound like a good thing. But to unbelievers during the tribulation, this is going to be music to their ears. His blasphemy will be all the things they want to hear. But as we've seen previously, it's not just blasphemies then we need to be aware of. It is blasphemies now. As we look at how the Antichrist blasphemes, we see very clearly Three kinds of blasphemies we need to be aware of now because they are currently at work in our world. There are syncretistic. Is that right, Melissa? No, Syncretistic. I have listened to that word on Google 43 times. I cannot pronounce it. That, that may be right. It may be syncretistic. I think I am right. Syncretistic blasphemism. Blasphemies. Syncretism is the blending together or harmonizing of different religions. From our perspective as disciples of Jesus, syncretism is blending non-Christian doctrines about God, Jesus, humanity, salvation, eternity, etc. with Christians' doctrines. Now to make this work, what you have to do is minimize or dilute certain doctrines from God's word so they harmonize with differing doctrines from other religions. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he uses these sorts of syncretistic blasphemies. Right? The blasphemies are on his head. There are blasphemous names written Upon his head. To me, I believe the blasphemous names in verse 1 are connected to the names of gods the Antichrist will claim to be. Remember, the Antichrist, he is going to claim to be all gods. He is going to set himself up as God to be worshipped as God. So it is entirely possible, and in my belief, probable. The names on his heads are the names of, of gods of our world that he is claiming to be. One will say Yahweh, for he is Yahweh. One will be Jesus, for he is Jesus. One will be Allah, for he is Allah. One will be Vishnu, for he is Vishnu. The, the blasphemous words are his claims to be God and his speaking as though he was God. Right? What he's going to basically say is, there's not... There is only one God, not multiple gods. There's only one God. But it's not Yahweh or Jesus or Vishnu or Allah. All of them just kind of spoke of me in different ways. Now, you may have heard, like, God is like an elephant. And if you have ten blind men 
touch an elephant in different parts and they describe what they feel. They're going to describe very different things, but it's all one color. Right? You ever heard somebody say something like that? That's what the Antichrist is going to say. Christians were right. They were scrambling as blind to understand, but the Hindus who worship Vishnu, they were right too, because they were also scrambling and just worked the best they could. Now, you think, oh, that's not common, but it's very common. This is a tweet uh, recently put out by a man named Michael Gunger. Uh, Gunger was a was at one point a, a disciple of Jesus. He was a worship leader and a Christian recording artist. Over time, he developed doubts about his faith, about Jesus, about God. And he followed those doubts till they led him to, I think initially like into atheism, but now into this sort of syncretism. So here's a tweet. He said, Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. You may be thinking, I would never be taken in by that sort of nonsense. I wouldn't disagree with you. You probably wouldn't. And while I can't give an actual percentage, the reality is this stuff is everywhere. And I would wager the vast majority of people who are 25 and under have been exposed to it in one way or another. They've been exposed to it through social media. They've been exposed to it through the music they listen to. They've been exposed to it through the books they read, the devotional studies they have. This, listen, the syncretism is absolutely common. In our day. And there are three dangers to it, I think. One is not knowing it's there. What kind of spirituality are our young people being exposed to through their music, their social media, the books they read, or their peers? If we aren't aware of what they're exposed to, then we can't talk to them about what they're hearing. If we don't know it's there, we can't deal with it. Second is not recognizing the the danger. Syncretistic blasphemies are are very spiritually dangerous. They're damning even. Listen, make no mistake. Lest Michael Gunger repent, he will go to hell. That belief is a damning belief. It is heresy. If we don't recognize the danger of these doctrines and and where they come from, the doctrines of demons, the doctrine of the spirit of the Antichrist, we're fooling ourselves. Third danger, not knowing how to refute them. Because here's a problem. There's some truth in that statement, isn't there? I mean, Jesus was Christ. Absolutely fact. We are the body of Christ. Also true. Well, if two parts of it are true, how can you say the other part's not true? How do you know Buddha wasn't Christ? How do you know biblical authors, when they called Jesus the Christ, they weren't saying it's the word for the universe seeing itself? How do you know you aren't Christ? You better be able to get answers to that. Because they're questions. They have them. As disciples of Jesus... We have to know that's there. And we, we understand we, we worship Jesus. Not Buddha who was Christ. Jesus. And the worship of Jesus cannot be mixed with any other worship, any other religion, any other spirituality, and still be the worship of Jesus. When we mix anything with the worship of Jesus, we cease to worship Jesus. Our doctrines as disciples of Jesus come from God's word. Our doctrines cannot be mixed with doctrines from other religious holy books and still be the doctrines of Jesus. Therefore, beware syncretistic blasphemies. Political blasphemies. The Antichrist and his claims to be God are accepted and embraced by the vast majority of the world. We've seen in verse 8, verse 7, 
all languages and tribes and peoples go for it. But they aren't just accepted by random people. We saw in Revelation 17, 12, and 13 that ten kings rise to power equal with the Antichrist and then as one abdicate their thrones to him, making him their king. Why? I ask you. Why would a king abdicate his throne to another man to be subject to him when he was on the equal playing field with him? He wouldn't. It doesn't make sense. But but what if? What if he was abdicating to God as king? Well, that's that's a different story. And I believe that's what the, the, the ten kings will use to say they're doing. They aren't abdicating their thrones to a man. They are surrendering to the one true God. And he is king over all. The Antichrist and these kings will use God to further their political agenda. And the idea of God, the idea of God, has been used and abused for political ends all throughout history. Why would Muslim men fly their planes, fly planes into buildings, killing thousands? Their God willed it. Why would Hindus rush into a building where people were worshiping Jesus and beat and imprison the pastor? Their God willed it. Why would Roman Catholics burn Protestants at the stake for translating the Bible into English? Their God willed it. Why would Swiss reformers drown Baptists to mock their belief in baptism by immersion? Their God willed it. Why would white Baptists buy kidnapped human beings, brand them like cattle, enslave them, and sell them at will? Their God willed it. Using God to promote political, political ideology is not new. And it is not reserved for the end times. I could easily point you to three or four pastors or Christian influencers who regularly use Jesus as a baseball bat to promote their political ideology. These folks come from the left side of the political aisle and they come from the right side of the political aisle. The one thing they have in common is they are certain Jesus agrees with every one, every single political issue they have. And they are certain Jesus hates all the same people they hate. As we've already discussed, the political right and the political left will eventually serve the dragon completely and serve him in some ways now. Therefore, beware of political blasphemies. Thirdly, miraculous blasphemies. The Antichrist performs signs and wonders. We talked about it a little bit last week. We talk about it a little bit more next week, so I won't get much into it this time. One particular sign and wonder he performs is a, a seeming resurrection, an imitation of Yahweh, where his Antichrist seems to be fatally wounded and then is raised from the dead, causing all of the world to follow after him. They worship the dragon because he gave the authority to the beast, right? And verse 4, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Even that statement, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him, is an imitation of statements made about Yahweh in Exodus 8.10, Psalm 71.9, Isaiah 41.7, Isaiah 46.5. The way the other blasphemies are going to get by the people are the great signs and wonders the Antichrist does, Right? He, he must be God because look at the power He does. Who is like Him? Who can make war against Him? We, we better submit to Him. Who is like the Antichrist? And they will look at His signs and His wonders and not the things He says and the things He does. And, and, and we live in a day with our entire movements who go under the name of Christians and they teach absolute, unmitigated, damnable heresies. But after their services, there's angel feathers in the chairs. So it must be of God. After the service, I had gold dust on my hands. God showed up. Or other signs and wonders. And when people say they're... But but that dude literally just said he was God Almighty himself. He, 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 he literally 
said from the pulpit on TV, when I read in the Bible and it says, I am, I say, I am too. Oh, but he healed people. Has to be of God. A lesson from Revelation 13. The devil can do signs and wonders as well. Signs and wonders with false doctrine is the devil. It is not God, no matter what the signs and the wonders are. Beware of miraculous blasphemies. Beware of blasphemies. They all matter. They're all significant. And they all come from the same spirit of the Antichrist, no matter what way they go. And then finally, beware those who promise the world. If you look at verse 5 through 7, a mouth was given to him, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given to him where every tribe, people, language and nation. The key phrase was given to him. And it shows these things are not his, but they are given to him. But the person who gives these things in verses 5 through 7 is different than the person who gives them in verse 2. Verse 5 through 7, it is it is Yahweh giving these things to the Antichrist, allowing him to have rule over the earth to say and do these things. All of these things that it talks about there, I believe, happen because it happens for 42 months, it says. 42 months is three and a half years. So I believe this all takes place during the first half of the tribulation. All he's doing is to set himself up as as God, all the peace he's brought, all the prosperity he's given, all the pleasure he's enabled. All of it has been for for one purpose, to set himself up as God. And the world goes along with it. But not all. Some reject his claims and continue to proclaim the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they urge people to repent of their sins, to believe in Jesus. But the Antichrist does not allow this rejection of him and this defying his claims to be God to go unchecked. He makes war with the saints and he hunts them down because that's what it means by overcome them. He hunts them down and he kills them. It's not just localized in an area. It's not in some faraway place. He hunts them down and kills them among every tribe, every people, every language, and every nation in the world. He hunts them down, Pakistan. And he hunts them down in China. And he hunts them down in Canada. And he hunts them down in America. And when they will not bow, and when they will not take his mark, he kills them, beheads them. But this death is not a defeat for the disciples of Jesus. We learned in Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. They did not love their life, even when faced with death. But the overcoming here, the overcoming. It's not a life of your best life now. It's not a life of every day being Friday. It's not a life of ease and prosperity. But the life of your best life now, the life of every day being Friday, the life of ease and prosperity is reserved for those who worship the beast and take his 
mark. For disciples of Jesus, they overcome through death. They will fulfill the words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna and they will be faithful until death. And in that moment of death, there is no defeat and there is no disappointment. When their lives are taken from them, they find themselves face to face with Jesus. And they will understand the words of the Apostle Paul who said to live is Christ and to die is gain. No disciple of Jesus will ever feel cheated as they stand before Christ. In that moment of death, they will experience death being swallowed up in victory because of Jesus and what He has done on the cross. Look at verse 8. The wording is very important. All who live on the earth worship Him except those... well whose names are not written since the foundation of the world in the book of life. The Antichrist extends his authority to every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all, all people, not merely all nations, some in all nations, but, but all people of all nations worship him. The only exception are the redeemed, the disciples of Jesus. Verse 8, they're called those whose names are written in the book of life. Verse 7, they're called the saints. Something we have to see in this passage about that day and about this day. Everybody worships someone. They either worship the Antichrist or they worship the Christ. And there's no in between. Those who refuse to worship Jesus will worship the Antichrist. And those who refuse to worship Jesus do worship the Antichrist. There are no in betweens given, there is Jesus. And there is the enemy. And that's all. Verse 10 is interesting because it's given to the Antichrist to make war with the saints and to overcome them as they preach. How do they respond? What do they do? If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. The Antichrist makes war with the disciples of Jesus. They do not make war. With the Antichrist. At least not in the traditional sense. As we saw in Revelation 11 verses 1-14. through The disciples of Jesus pushed back against evil. By boldly proclaiming the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus do not fight back in the traditional sense. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal earthly weapons. But they are spiritual ones that break down strongholds and take thoughts captive. 2 Corinthians 10 and 4 tells us. What this means is disciples of Jesus, they don't take up arms to fight back against the Antichrist. Rather, they push back against his claims by proclaiming the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And as they do this, they accept what Jesus allows, whether this be prison or death. They do, as, as Peter says, they arm themselves with the mind of Christ and they endure what comes. They do it because they know the persecutor, the executor, doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. Our lives are in His hands. Final judgment is in His hands. And He will surely bring judgment to pass in His time. But the last of verse 10 requires perseverance and faith on our part. The perseverance and the faith of the saints. Is to be faithful to proclaim the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if that means we're destined for captivity, then we go to captivity. If it means we're destined for the sword, we go to the sword. We persevere. We have faith. And we essentially submit to what Jesus allows.
Because in the end, He wins and we get to be a part of that. Something I thought about, and we'll close with this, as I studied this passage, it's the contrast between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the seeming death and the resurrection of the Antichrist. Jesus dies and rises again. The vast majority of the world yawns. The Antichrist seems to die and rise again, and the world is amazed. Jesus dies and rises again and calls people to follow him, but most won't. The Antichrist seems to die, rise again, calls people to follow him, and most do. Jesus dies and rises again, and doing so brings about the salvation of the world. The Antichrist seems to die and rise again. But this accomplishes nothing for anyone but him. The problem here isn't Jesus or the the Antichrist has a better plan or has better marketing. The problem is the hearts of humanity. You see, Jesus offers ultimate salvation then. But now calls us to a life of self-denial. But now calls us to a life of sacrificial living. But now calls us to a life of selflessness. But now calls us to a life of cross-bearing. But now calls us to not be conformed to this world. But the Antichrist. Sure. He offers ultimate damnation then. But now. But now he calls people to a life of carnal pleasure. But now he calls people to a life of self-indulgence. But now he calls people to a life of selfishness. But now he calls people to a life of personal prosperity. And the revelation in this is clear. The vast majority of humanity is perfectly content to trade their souls for carnal pleasure, self-indulgence, selfish living, and personal prosperity. But they are trading their souls. Beware. Those who offer the world. John writes in verse 9. Be sure you have ears to hear. For the message he's preaching. Is intense. The warning he gives. Is important. Question for those of us in here today. Do we have ears to hear? And this is important. Not, not do they. Say, well, there's, I wish they were here to hear it. So do I. But they're not. We are. Don't think about others in this moment. Do you have ears to hear the message John is bringing? Beware. The spirit of the Antichrist who deceives people then is at work today and will lead each and every one of us astray if we're not careful. Let's stand.